My guest today is Robert Ian Bonick, speaker, best-selling author, model, entrepreneur. Today, Rob shares how he went from being raised in children's home. My mother used to visit us on a fairly semi-regular basis. For me, I was ashamed of her. Experiencing racism. We were walking past the pub. Someone ran out. Oi, N-word, go back to your own F-word country. And this guy hit me. To break out success in modeling, sports, speaking world biggest stages, quitting one of the most popular podcasts in Bali, and much, much more. Tell me about working with Madonna. How did that happen? Hey guys, Natalie here. Before we continue, a quick ask. I know you're enjoying the show. I would like to bring bigger guests, and the best way you can help me is please subscribe because it helps me to get more reach and give us all more opportunity to learn from the best in the world. I really appreciate you. Now let's go back to the show. You yourself had a very tough upbringing. So you, were you born in a children's home or how did, how did you come to a children's home and how was the life there for 17 years? Yeah, so my uh, parents came from Jamaica separately uh, from two different parts of Jamaica, St. St. Elizabeth and St. Catherine, uh, Kingston. And they, they met, had like a fatal attraction of sorts, literally. Apparently my dad said, you know, last time we saw my mom, there was a knife involved and there was a threat involved, right? And, uh, and he didn't really necessarily want to see her again. And um, so we were living with our mom at that time, but then she was also suffering from things like schizophrenia and the whole Jamaican challenge, which is, you know, you were led to believe that the streets are paved with gold. You come from Jamaica, you work in the UK, London, and you go home and live like a king or queen. You came to work on the streets and the streets were not paved with gold. Yeah. Right, so that was so you're already suffering from that. So then you meet, you have this fatal attraction. You have two kids, uh, and he was the same age as, as I was when I left the UK, 18. Yeah. Uh, and so all these common denom denominators came into it. But ultimately, they were living separately. The relationship was already kind of done. And then, uh, and then one day, my mum uh, left my sister, who's about a year and a half older than me. I was in a cot, and she went to the place where our dad was staying, like a halfway house. And basically dropped my sister there with some change of nappies, some clothes, uh, so a bit, bit of food. Knocked on the door and a relative or a distant cousin answered and said, look, these are Lambert's kids. I'm done. And then she left. And then, and then uh, when her dad got home from work, remember he's 18. He's trying to find his way. Uh, there's no real um, financial independence or security. And he's realizing now I've got two kids to look after. I can't do it. He went to the police. They said, look, she hasn't committed any crime, right? But you can have them brought up in care for, I think, a percentage of your income. And he, he just he took that option. Uh, and then, yeah, so then we were in one children's home that apparently wasn't that great for a short period of time. And then we were moved to another one. And that's where I stayed for maybe 16 years and with my elder sister. And so what was it like? It was, um, I mean, when you only know what you know, there's nothing to really compare it to. So what it was like for, for, for me was uh, it was a learning ground, right? It was a learning ground because I was always the youngest. I was there for the longest, pretty much. And I was bullied. I had uh, all sorts of issues. I was extremely shy, had the worst stutter, lisp, mechanical jaw issues. I wasn't the guy that you see before you today then. And if you'd have asked anybody then, they'd be like, that guy become that? No way. Yeah. And, and But the interesting part is that each aspect served me in a different way. So, so I'll, I'll give you three. 
So one aspect was that I was born alone and I would die alone. That was the, the mindset which I had. So pros and cons. Pro was that there was somewhere within me where no one could get it to. No matter of the bullying which I faced, the racism that I faced, the, all the challenges that I faced, there was a part in me which I kept extremely well protected from anyone and anything, right? That was great. In relationship later on, it didn't work out because that's the time where you need to share yourself with your partner and I wasn't able to do that. So on one way, it saved me from all of the taking on this really um, hardcore stuff in a very negative way that would probably impede me for the rest of my life. But then on the other hand, it wouldn't allow me to be open at the time where I really needed to be, right? So that was, that, that was one thing. Uh, a second thing, you know, that was, was going on was this learning experience of with all of these kids used to fight each other based upon their color, nationality, ethnicity, ideology, because we're all different. Jamaicans, um, Pakistani, Indian, German, Spanish, you name it, all the colors of the rainbow. And, and we didn't get along, most of us. So there was this hate, but really it wasn't hatred, but at the time you would use that word. And, but there was a few times. One was when uh, the mods, this group of neo-fascists, neo basically came to attack our house. Wow. Right? It's a long story, but the short version is they, came, they were chasing someone who ran into our house. So I was watching TV with some other kids. I was maybe six, eight, nine, that sort of age. Through the window comes a massive, kind of like a, like a metal pallet. And then it was seriously on. 30, 40 people with bats, bricks, weapons of all kinds, besieging the house or sieging the house, looking to inflict pain on everyone they could find. No matter if you're a kid, no matter if you're an adult. So there's like, at that point, everyone in that children's home forgot their differences and everyone fought together. From the kids, we ran upstairs and we we're throwing cups and glasses like this down onto the melee below, right? from uh, the kids in our children's home who were second dan, karate, kung fu, boxing, and literally about 10 kids or people repelled a force of 30 or 40. And I mean, and that taught me, I was like, you know what? So we do apparently don't like each other, but when there's something that threatens all of us, we galvanize, you know, and we yeah. forget our differences and we become one. And at that point, I realized that that was my mission, was to do that, was to find ways to bring people together um, with vastly different ideologies, ethnicities, ways of seeing the world. I knew then when I saw that, that that's what I needed to do. Um, you know, so, so that, that was the second one. And then lastly, it was about um, like learning that the things which I saw as negatives are positives. So I was an introvert, heavily, heavily introverted, heavily, heavily shy. But what I realized was that that introvert gave me the opportunity to see people and see their actions and the reactions of what happened later. One guy was shot in the head, right? That was shocking, right? Um, bang. How did that happen? Uh, that, that was uh, in a pub playing pool. Guy, they got in an argument. A guy pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head. Like bad, bad, horrible situation. Uh, other situations that weren't so melodramatic happened. But what I saw was... Because I was able to not talk, not engage, but I looked. I was able to kind of realize, oh, okay, so if you do that, that could happen. If you were seeing five girls at once because you were an incredibly good-looking guy and had that thing, 
it looks cool from the outside, but then when I look and speak to each of the girls individually who don't see me as a threat because I'm so damn shy, uh, then I realized that each of them was suffering their own hell. So from what looked on the outside as being a super cool thing to do, I realized it was not a cool thing to do at all because you're hurting people in the process, not realizing it. And then the extrovert came when I was really good at sport and excelled and was put on the stage to receive medals and awards and all this stuff. And it's very difficult to be in that place where everybody's, yeah, and you're like, yeah. So I developed this alter ego, right? Like For sure. the introvert yeah. made the extrovert. This guy who was happy-go-lucky, the guy you see before you now, that guy came from that, like an experiment, you know, of like, I wonder what would happen if I would be like this. And then what I noticed is I was able to see that, hey, one gives you the clarity of looking and seeing, you know, how things are, how people are, what happens when you make these sorts of decisions and choices. And the other one was, was more of a promoter, more of a, this is what happens when you're able to move the energy of people around you and, and, uh, and draw that energy in and push that energy out. These are the sorts of experiences working with Madonna, um, becoming this incredible like model from working with supermodels. And all of these things were created by the extrovert, not the introvert. So then I realized, wow, these two things together empower me to do what I just said, empower me to bring together anyone, to be able to speak to anyone, to be able to get to the core of anyone. Because those two things work in tandem. Sometimes you need to lift the energy to bring people out of their energy level or their place of maybe slumped over. Oh, they, they stand up. They're smiling all of a sudden. And suddenly these things come forward. For others, they need that for you just to listen, not to speak, not to bring the energy, not to move the energy, but just to hold the energy. And that's where the introvert comes in, which is just able to hold that space hold that energy and allow the questions, the energy to come through without fighting it, without repelling it, without judging it, just allowing it to be. And, and that's really what Speak Up Monday is all, is all, is all about, funnily enough. Yeah, I want to linger a little bit on the, on the childhood and then we can talk about Madonna for sure oh, yeah. and, 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 and all who you are now. So I've never been to child's home, so just dumb question, but I'm really curious. Yeah. How does a day look like? Yeah. What is it? Is there any structure? Do you feel like you're in prison or do you feel yeah. like you're free? Like, what is it? Great question. So each children's home in a way is run, not in a different way, um, but not necessarily the same. So where we were, it, you had members of staff that were kind of like surrogate parents, right? Now, each one had their own challenges, gifts, and I guess uh, things that take away, right? So we're there, over the, the period of time, I maybe 20, 20 members of staff, 20 surrogate parents, let's say. Now, so for example, one, Eugene, um, uh, she was Barbadian, so from Barbados. So she brought that flavor in with food when she was on, so they would stay overnight and they'd work in shifts. And some would be working the whole day and some would stay overnight. And then they would, they would kind of be replaced the next day. So with Eugene, you know, like she'll be teaching you about the food, saying, you know, you're eating this Barbadian food. Another one, Jamaican, Jamaican food. Another one, 
uh, more Australian, eating Australian food, another one more English, eating English food. So each one had their own mix, uh, their own way that impacted you. The lady who ran the home, Gail, was a Christian, right? an ardent Christian. And so the Christian values kind of came through, I think, until her husband was cheating on her. And I think things changed after that. You know? <laughs> so again, but, but you, you, you see the, the fallibility of human beings up close. And that's what I mean, that each one had their pros and each one had not cons, but things that took away from who they were. And you would intuit all of it. So the one aspect is you, you have those guys who are there like surrogate parents. Um, the second aspect is based upon the age that you are, school is like everywhere else. School is not inside. It's like a place where you live, the children's home. So then you go out to school every day. In the morning, you wake up early. You know, you go, you go to walk to school if it's close enough, do your school, maybe come back at lunchtime or not, and then come back after school, maybe after school activities. You come back, how was your day? Dinner's on the table, right? And then you have your life, homework, all the rest of that. So that is kind of like a normal kind of home situation that looks a bit like your home. Where it changed or where it was different or maybe not was on the weekends. You know, I was a guy, I used to wake up early then. And I was always, in my mind, it's not, it's not always true, but it's, it's true in my head. Uh, I was a guy who had to do all the errands, right? I, I was up early. It's like, oh, Rob, you're up. Yeah, go and do this. Go and do that. Go and do this. Oh. Right. So I would go and do this milk round where you go and deliver milk early in the morning, followed by a paper round, where you go and, deliver, go and deliver the papers, right? Early, early morning. So I was that kid, right? So during the weekends, I would have that. Uh, during the week, would be like a normal life. And then, uh, yeah, then at nighttime, you have a certain bedtime that you're supposed to be asleep by. But me, I used to stay up late and, and you know, and, and try and do other things with, with my time that wasn't necessarily the productive one. But in general, that's kind of how it operates and when you got to the age of 16, uh, then you were given like a budget. So you're given X amount of pocket money a week. And from that, you're supposed to go out, buy your own food, cook your own food, as though you were living um, by yourself. And in this way, it was a way for you to transition by the age of 18 to leave the children's home, go to a council flat, a council home, and, and you know not have this massive shock of having to look after yourself and, and, and all the rest of that. So... I don't have any questions. Yeah. Um, I guess the mindset question is important because if I was in a children's home, part of me would say, nobody loves me. Yeah. Part of me says, nobody needs me. I'm a failure. So it's very hard to then turn it around and say, no, this is not true. Because I see how you're talking about your dad right now with compassion and with love, but I could imagine that there probably was an anger yeah and uh how how did that come to you and how did you overcome that yeah, great question i mean look there's a few ways one was racism and we'll get into that later um but even though i was this introverted extrovert and, and you know i i worked things out like that fairly early i was still a very upset kid i was very angry and sport really helped to exorcise and i use that word on deliberately to exorcise those feelings of rage. So rugby, you know, you put it all into the tackle. You know, I used to go in head first, you know, and it came yeah. out like, you know. Uh, but this was really important um, for a kid who's struggling with identity issues and all the rest of that um, to get through uh, to other things. So the, the other one was that, you know, I was always um, 
really uh, upset with how I looked. So for this uh, 13, 14 years, I was the only black kid at school. I think there was one other, one other girl, uh, Rosalind, who came later. And, and so I identified with a white view of the world, right, in multiple ways. One is around beauty. So then I looked at me and said, okay, the color, I can deal with that. The nose was too wide. The lips were too big. The head was too, like, I would break it down. I would sit there for hours with a mirror in front of my face. I was picking myself apart, right? I'll have a nose job, a lip job, or this job, or that job, like fully, uh, even to the point of, you know, thinking that, yeah, like if you didn't look a certain way, you wouldn't make it in the world. And I, and I believe I didn't look that way. So therefore, part of me believed very strongly that I wouldn't make it in the world, right? Because I was ugly and, and all of these things. So that's part of what the modeling was for, was to find a way to um, get that, outside um, acknowledgement that you look okay, right? Which didn't work because, uh, we can get to that story later, but it didn't work and it came crashing down to earth. But um, so there were three courses that were very powerful. One was a landmark forum that I did three times. Uh, so it's like a conversation that goes on over two and a half days, really powerful. Uh, I met with meditation, spiritual, classical Indian gurus. Uh, that's, that's another lineage. So you've got the forum, you've got the meditation and all of that. And then I used to do uh, kind of any other course that I could find that was self-development kind of focused, reading books and all this other stuff. So these three things in tandem helped me to realize a few things. One was that, you know, how you see the world is based upon how you see yourself. You know, and as I mentioned, I was looking to the outside world for acknowledgement. And then I had a shocking experience that realized that that wasn't it. That's not where it was. And, and so then I realized it was had to be inside. So I tried the external, didn't work. The internal, I thought, well, that's where I need to go. And then there was a relationship for like 22 years with a girl called Isabella. And we went on that journey. You know, we met in a meditation um, retreat. And then we, we just kept on going and, and went deeper. She went in a different direction. I went in a different direction, but uh, but it was deeply involved in that, you know, like, like the internal aspects of you, um, that this is a shell. It's not who you are. You know, you are, you have emotions, but you're not your emotions. Uh, you, you have all of these things, but you're none of these things. So then who are you? You know, your pure spirit, uh, your pure soul, your timeless. Your, and so I got to these sorts of places and then that helped me to come to terms with how I looked, right? But it was an inside job, not an outside job. Uh, and so these things helped me after, between the ages of around 20 and like, well, up until now, right? Um, but I would say 20 to 35 were the most intense years of this kind of inner like search um, for understanding, for acceptance of myself. Yeah. And all the modeling and all the other stuff, like through that whole period, yeah. I didn't have it at all. Wow. The outside world would have seen this guy who's going for it, extrovert, ah, he's having the best life. But internally, I was screwed and, and, and I knew it. Wow. But I was looking for those ways to deflect um, what was truly happening inside of me um, to do the outside world stuff. I think that's very common. Like, yeah. Especially with people who gain some success, they start to associate with their success 
and they start to believe the story, but then if they don't fix internally who they are, then it catches up on you and then like, it has to. Yeah. So, I mean, your parents is very interesting because, I mean, it can be seen as some kind of betrayal. Yeah. So how was your relationship to your parents? Have you talked to them afterwards? Did you make amends with them? And you have a sister as well. Was she part of this story as well? Yeah. So good. Uh, I didn't like the way she looked. I didn't like the way she smelt. There you go, the smell. I showed a mustache. So I had all of these things uh, that I didn't look forward to seeing her, right? Uh, and it, it hurts me to say that, but it's the truth, right? Uh, I didn't look forward to, to, to seeing her. It's one of those ones that, that I had to endure as opposed to look forward to or enjoy, right? And this is early years. So we're talking 8 to 16, 17, 18, right? And my dad, I didn't recall ever seeing uh, apparently he came very early, but then he realized that our mother was coming to see us and he didn't want any, anything to do with threats or knives or anything. So he didn't come. I met my dad again, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, by chance and a bunch of happenstance things. And, uh, but with him, I was able to forgive him because I'd done all the work and, and I'd come to the understanding and the realization that I take responsibility for my life, that ultimately I've had a great life, you know? And had I have maybe not been brought up the way that I did, Lord only knows where I would be. So by the time I met him, I was able to say, listen, whatever you're feeling, if, it's, if there's this, 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 or this, leave it, drop it. You don't need it because I'm complete about that. You know, and, I, and there's no ill will, feelings of shame, guilt I'm towards you. None. So be cool. And we've been best mates ever since. Really? Um, now my mom... I believe I missed the opportunity to actually say that to her in person. I've done it in other ways, um, you know, where I've had conversations with her because ultimately, you know, the, because obviously having kids now, you know, like mom is the key, not dad. Uh, dad, sorry, dad, the verb there. But mom is the key, really. Um, dad is imp important, both are important, but mom is the key. So by me feeling ashamed of my mom, I realized it's all internal. It's all this, you know, um, one finger pointing is three back at you. So me saying, I'm ashamed of my mom. No, you're ashamed of you, not her. So then I, w I was able to come to a place of, of uh, thank you to my mom, right? And I know she had her issues and she had her challenges and wanted us all to be a family again. I remember these things, but it's like, mom, we never were a family. Um, but I really hold her in, in high regard and I really thank her for doing what she did with all of the challenges that she had was still able to do what she did right so I love and appreciate her more now than I ever did when she was alive and and what when I was what when I was younger which is a bit shocking to me but that uh, but that's the truth you know uh yeah so I was so the work that I did the inner work that I did was able to flush out and to release any ill will, feelings of anger, doubt, uh, sadness, um, jealousy, rage, all of those things had been, had been uh, processed before I met my dad again. And then during the time where I met my mom, those feelings of being ashamed of her, ashamed of myself, you know, then that took longer to process, you know, because that was realizing that all of that is that. It's nothing to do with that. It's everything to do with this. Uh, yeah, your sister, good. Carol was always there, and we never really hung out 
till we left. So at the age of 17 and a half, we, we went, we were given a council flat together and then we lived together, right? During the children's home, we acknowledged each other, but didn't really kind of hang out until maybe two or three years before we left. So, so, so Carol is a beautiful human, man. She's extremely funny, um, uh, very, very, very intelligent and almost too intelligent. Uh, now the thing with her is that, whereas for me, the growing up in care, I saw ultimately as a springboard, right? Um, as a trampoline, she took it in a different way. And, and I think there's that relationship with daughters that I have with their parents that was missing. I think that had a really um, deeper impact on her and to not to the positive, right? Uh, she had a scar on her leg um, that we, that over the years tried to use skin grafts to cover it and it never really worked. And that became, um, you know, for, for a woman having this, especially for her, she felt that she couldn't become close with people in a romantic setting. So, so, you know, so with Carol, it's a different story and, uh, I love it. I, I love her greatly, dearly, uh, but she had a different journey, um, throughout all of that and it impacted her differently. And, and I, I know she's very proud of me and, and I love her for that. And, and I probably don't speak to her enough. Um, so after this, I probably give, give her, give her a buzz, but, uh, but yeah, it was two, like you can grow up in the same way, but have two very different experiences. And, and that, that would be an example of, of that. Yeah. I read one of your posts on LinkedIn about your book and you said that a lot of people who were in your children's home, they either died or became a drug addict or in jail. Yeah. Right and you are a big exception from that. Yeah. So why do you think that happened? Why do you think those people are there and you are here? What is something that you did differently, I guess? I think there's two or three answers to that. You know, one despite what I've said and I still feel that the luck is in there somewhere, you know, and do you create your own luck? Yes. Uh, but there's luck in there also. Uh, so that's definitely one part of it. Uh, another part of it is, yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of had this mindset, you know, that there was, uh, I call it the three pillars of, uh, of purpose, right? So one pillar is no purpose. I have no purpose. I'm just want to uh, have a great time. I want to do things that inspire me, that enlighten me, that give me joy, that give me freedom, all of these things that, that are important to me. And I'm going to go and do it as much as I can. The second pillar is like um, being pushed by something. So I grew up in the children's home. So therefore doing things that impact to a positive other orphan kids, like coaching basketball. Yeah, I feel pushed to do it. Another one has been pulled. Right, so Paul is like uh, like here, riding around on my bike, uh, surrounded by this beautiful nature, and then I get uh, an uh, an idea drops in. It's like, whoa, I'm going to do that because I can and I will, and I know how to do it. I'm doing it right, and this is how uh, certain events have been created and, and things like that. So me, upon leaving the kids' home, I was more in number one. You know, I was just like, right, life, let's go. You know, there was part of me that was um, very careful. Like I, I got a basketball scholarship at the age of 15. And I could have gone to America um, to, to college and started and gone really seriously for ball. And at the time, I was very defensive in my thinking. So were the people around me. Rob, what if you get an injury? What if you get this? What if you get that? Da, 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 da. Better that you go to school, get good grades. So that's what I ended up doing. So after that, I think I, I, I felt 
that I'd missed on something. And so part of me was like, again, part of me was like, let's just go out and experience stuff and have fun. Right. You know, so I think a part of it was on leaving the kids home was that mindset of, you know, I just want to, not that I was out of jail, but in a way it's like I'm out of prison. Uh, I want to go, you know, I want to experience things, you know, which give me joy, you know. And right, so I went and I studied down at Southampton University, uh, the Warsash campus, this education course, right. I didn't really want to leave, uh, it was, but it was an excuse to leave London. Right, as an excuse to get out of that and, and do it. You know, playing basketball, traveling around was an excuse to get out of that. So so I think these are things that were quite important um, of this mindset of like life is there to be discovered, to be appreciated, to be enjoyed, to be, ah, go out and get it, right? Um, so, so so I think that was very important. So luck, that, and, and just this mindset of, I did feel protected. Something about all of the experiences that I had, I could have died a few times. Uh, just things. I used to run into walls um, when I was a kid to see how it felt like. Wow. You know, I, I smashed my head open four or five times. One time I was sitting in a tree, like a, dropping the apple and being utterly and totally convinced that uh, I could control my descent. So I'll be there on a tree dropping this apple after hours and I'm throwing myself off and... and <laughs> Boom. Oh, I, I didn't control my descent, right? And I was like, you know, like a bit giddy, but no one there was watching, but I thought, okay, that doesn't work. I used to run into trees and lampposts on purpose wow. to see what it felt like. And I said, boom. So I smashed my head open three or four times wow. going up, and it became so hard that I used to hit it and no more blood. Really? Just, yeah, because just this re that's why people used to call me peanut head. Yeah. Because I got this peanut shaped head. Uh, but but that was it, like so. And when you look at it, it's like, what was I trying to do? And, you know, why was I trying to open my brain? You know, it's almost like I was trying to get out of my head. Yes. Why the hell do you want to do that? And when you, again, there's ways you can look at that. So so I think uh, you know, with that paired with this, which I never really put together in this particular way. Thank you for the question. But I think that was it. You know, it was like this is the way for me to get out of my head. Right, yeah. is to go out and just to do stuff, experience stuff that's out of my comfort zone, um, to a certain extent. So I think all of these things, and, and because I didn't die, I think I had this feeling of being protected. Yeah, somehow I still do. Uh, this feeling that there's a guiding hand, you know. And this was before I found out this Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and all this other stuff later. Um, but I've always felt, for as long as I can remember, that I had this guiding hand, and and where it started was sitting, uh, and I think we all have access to this, right? Sitting there in the mirror, pulling myself apart, going down the spiral, or oh, I don't look good enough. And that means I'm screwed, right? And I remember uh, there, was, there was a voice that I heard for the first time, and it was like, Robert, just look after your skin. And, and in that moment, I acknowledged that that was a different place. It was like a different, it was like the voice of my soul talking to me. And it was the first time that I heard it. And that is one I've always found a way to get my, to find again. In different times, I, I don't listen and I move away and I have stupid accidents or whatever. But when I'm focused and when I want to go there and when I'm motivated and driven, I go back and I find that same voice. So it wasn't what it said. It was a sentiment of what it said and the feeling that it gave me. And, and then that is the one that helps me to feel this feeling of protection. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
Just talking about the skin, uh, racism is, mm. is a big part. So tell me, how did you experience that? And I mean, this is something that people of color experience all the time. So maybe if you can give some advice to people who are struggling with that as well, how can they navigate that? Yeah, like racism is an interesting one. Uh, all of these ones are based upon lack of knowledge, right? Uh, ignorance, basically, right? And fear. Lack of knowledge, ignorance, same as ignorance, and fear. So how uh, racism um, showed itself to me growing up was different things. You know, it was how people look at you, how people treat you, um, names that they call you, the N-word, all of these things. Uh, yeah, and just, you know, wanting to, wanting to hurt you. You know, so I experienced all of these things. And I think most people of this color or different colors do. So it's not that I'm unique in that way. Um, I mean, but the, this one experience, uh, it hit it, it, it will sum it up. So we were walking past a pub, me and a friend, I was probably 12, that kind of age. And uh, so there's a pub in this upper middle class area where we, where we were growing up. And so, so someone ran out, oi, N-word, go back to your own F-word country, right? Guy was drunk, tall, adult. And I look at the guy, I'm like, you know, we were born here, this is our country. And this guy hit me. I fall, I fall down. This guy I'm with, small me, but old me, hits him. This guy falls down. And I'm thinking, okay, how's that was odd? And more people start running out. And I'm thinking like, okay, I think we better run. I start running thinking that my friend Andy is there. I'm running away and I feel someone pursuing me. Uh, and then at some point, I feel that they're not pursuing me anymore. And I'm thinking like, well, thank God that's over. And I turn around expecting Andy to be there. Andy's nowhere to be seen. So now I'm like, okay, uh, this is not good. And I turn around and I look in the distance from where I'd run from. And I see maybe 10, 15 guys around something, kicking something. Whoa. And I couldn't see what it was because everyone is, is around. And they're hurling obscenities, N-word, blah, 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 blah. And I go back. As I walk back, they're too busy there and I realized there's Andy so I'm there I was a, I was a tough kid but I was also bullied I went through periods of being a bully and being bullied and all the rest of that and I'm there thinking like okay if I walk back there I'm dead because I'm going to be the guy on the floor if I don't walk back there then I'm going to be I'm going to forever you know remember this moment of being a coward right and, and I was stuck fight flight or freeze freeze and um and like eventually what happened was that these girls end up breaking but one last thing so these guys then um other guys ran out and they pulled them aside and i thought they're going to stop it they pulled them aside to put fresh boots in so the, what's going on inside my head are things like the cowboys and the indians right the cowboys are the good guys the indians are the dirty savages it's how we grew up thinking obviously it's not the truth in that moment all of these sorts of childish ways of seeing the world were broken. So then I realized that something isn't right with the world, right? That people would do this and not stop, right? And, and no one's coming to save you is what it kind of felt like. Yeah. So what ended up happening was that these guys go away, uh, girls come, shame the guys into stopping. And they feel, Andy gets up, thank God. And we run away. We walk away. He's limping, and uh, and, it, 
And then he tells a story to one of the older kids in the home. I start crying because this guy starts crying and it's, it's not good. I'm pissed off because I know that I didn't um, behave how I thought I would. I thought I'd be the man. I thought I'd be the strong one and I'll be the guy. But these are adults and I wasn't used to fighting adults. And um, so what happened was like this kind of, um, this midnight of the soul or whatever you want to call it. Three days I felt terrible, like the worst I've ever felt thinking about him and just me and all that just kept nightmares, 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 nightmares. Six months before, we studied the Hundred Years' War. And it was about, obviously, uh, kid put his hand up, miss, Hundred Years' War. It can't be the same people fighting, can it, miss? Over my head, didn't understand. On the third day, this lesson in history came back to me and I realized, fuck, like, pardon the French, um, it's, it's, not, it's not the same people fighting. It's the message is passed down from generation to generation to hate someone based on the color of the skin and all the rest of that. And then I realized that I had a choice. As much as I wanted to get revenge on that guy and beat his head to a pulp and kick him in the head and all this stuff that was going in my head, I realized exactly what the Hundred Year War was. So this is like two points now. One, where the mods, both are violence. Both were one when a mod, which I just made that connection, um, the mods come over, there's violence, and I realize that we can galvanize. Number two is that experience there where, uh, where I realized that, yeah, as much as I want revenge, then if I took the revenge, I'm doing exactly the same thing as all of those guys in the Hundred Years' War. It's, it's perpetuated because of that kind of attitude. So then I realized that I have the opportunity to be the place where it stops. So at that point, I understood racism. Yeah. And then um, shortly after that, you know, it took a few years, but, but, but that was the start of it. You know, then I realized, um, you know, what it was, which is very quick. Um, like when someone pushes the N word, right? And I call that to you, it's air that hits your eardrum. It vibrates. It goes to this apparatus, right? Then it creates this, uh, it hits this filing cabinet in your brain. The filing cabinet has a meaning, and that meaning is then what creates the response. He's calling me this, I'm going to hit him, because it's not a very nice thing to do or to say. So once I realized and broke down and unpacked what was actually happening, then I realized that the key is what is in the filing cabinet in your mind. So if someone calls me the N-word, if I apply a different meaning, like the word king, N-word, he's calling me a king. Thanks, brother. Yeah. It changes the frequency and interrupts the response for everyone. Yeah. And, and I did this a few times. People would call me the N-word at school later and I'd beat them up. And then after a while, it took a few attempts. Then what I realized was that then they saw that they didn't have the response that they were looking for. And it put them in a state of like shock, panic, didn't know what to do next. And that gave me the opportunity to come forward and say, so why would you even say that word? What were you looking to do? What were you looking to gain by it? Now, in most of those situations, it wouldn't help them. But in some of those situations, I could see that they would ask themselves that question and go like, well, yeah, why do I want to? It's a bit idiotic. So in other words, I, be, I use that as a transformational experience to transmute the energy of the N word into something positive. Yeah. And once I was able to do that, even though racism still exists, 
I have never really, I've never really felt the brunt of racism ever since. Wow. Right. And that's the thing. So again, it's like you go to a tribe in the middle of the Amazon. Maybe they have never seen the word. They don't have have a word for the word white. So if you don't have a word for it, then you can't experience yeah. it. So in the same way is that is that I racism exists. Of course, I know that, right? But it doesn't apply to me because yeah. like I I treat it in a whole different way. So therefore, it it doesn't persist. It doesn't uh, impact or afflict me in that particular way. That's a good good yeah. way to deal with it. There's a soul just to words. The world is you perceive the world the way you are. Like the world is not real, it's not real in your head. So essentially, if you perceive this as a threat, it's going to be a threat. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. You are related to Malcolm X, Martin yeah. King Jr., and somebody else. Yeah, Marcus Garvey. Yeah. yeah, like, like. so when I found my dad again, uh, so he's my uncle, his brother, is a great guy called Ronald, uh, Ronald Bonick, and he's authored many books. And Ronald is a historian. He's probably in his 80s, maybe more by now. And he documented our family tree and all the rest of that. And, and then when I read one, one of the books, uh, then I got it. I was like, oh, my God. So in our family tree, so these are Jamaican Maroons. Jamaican Maroons came from a few different places. One is the Arawak Indians, who are like a, like the indigenous tribe to that region of uh, where Jamaica is. Um, and the other one was obviously the slaves uh, through Africa, around and in. Uh, as some were run, run, runaway slaves that came through the top. But basically, um, the Jamaican maroons, uh, one of them, one of the roots is, uh, yeah, ships. They took the wise men and the warriors, not a great combination. As they came into what is now Jamaica or became Jamaica, they killed the crew, killed the captain, swam ashore, marooned the ship, swam, swam ashore. So these maroons then became this fierce warriors because what happened was that you know the it's called the maroon war uh and there were two maroon treaties where the british made peace with the maroons uh why because it was dense jungle muskets you know you get one shot which doesn't really work when you've got dense tree dense foliage around you and these jamaicans would come and kill the british in horrible horrendous ways to in such a way as those fighting alongside their british counterparts would lose that thirst for battles like Look what they just did to John. You know, he's strung up and, oh, oh, I don't want to fight these guys, the savages. I don't want to be like that. I want to go back to my wife and kids. So you lose this appetite for war. So the Maroons had had these two treaties with the British. Because again, human beings, peace lasts for a certain period of time, and then it's going again. So so that's so so my great great keep on going. Uh, Grandma was known as the nanny of the nanny of the of the Maroons. These two brothers Kudjaw and the other one I forget his name and that's where these maroons came from so Martin Luther King Malcolm X Marcus Garvey Colin Powell um, these are all Jamaican maroons and uh, so yeah so they underpinned not Colin Powell but the other three they underpinned the American civil rights movement obviously and uh, wow. yeah so so more and more and more uh, again I became the speaker before I knew any of this yeah I was the shyest kid again the lisp the mechanical jaw issues all of this I was never supposed to be a speaker Never in a million years you would have seen me growing up. But then this thing uh, comes through, not from, right? Yeah. And the, the older which I get, the more I feel it's coming through, right? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want it because these guys all got shot. They all got killed. I, I don't want to be killed, yeah. right? So I think that's part of the reason why it's uh, this thing about 
like um, not living to my potential yeah. has been there. Wow, amazing. Tell me about working with Madonna. How did that happen? Yeah, the funny things. I ended up doing about meeting her. How funny. So the MTP Music Awards in, in Milan, uh, 1998. And what happened was that uh, it was the Madonna MTV Music Awards. So I had a friend who was working for MTV, um, Julie Dunn. Hello, Julie, if you're watching this. And I was that guy who was always able to create networks. So just, just a thing that extrovert goes, goes to play. And uh, one of them was I, I got into the, this, the, there's three agencies in Milan at that time, one called Ricardo Guy. And I was in this as a model, backdoored it. That's another story for another day. And um, so part of that was having this incredible network of people. One of my good friends at that time, a uh, guy I used to hang out with was the most expensive football player in the world, a guy called Christian Vieri. Uh, and again, so I used to work in his clubs. I used to work, so I just created this incredible network of people. So what MTV needed was, you know, some high level people to go and attend the MTV Music Awards, right? So, so yeah, so it was, so, you know, so it was all making way for Madonna and I was all set up to meet her because I was creating all this audience to come and meet her and see her and all the rest of that. And then I got a call from Sydney, uh, a guy I met before saying, hey, Rob, we've got this thing. It's a club. It's called Home. Like, well, they didn't have a name at that time. Italian guy. And it's like, I want you to come back. Here's a ticket. And I was like, Madonna, Australia. <laughs> ah. And at that point, I, I went back to Sydney. Uh, but I, but I, 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 I did okay. I worked with Naomi Campbell and Herzegova and these amazing supermodels and uh, was hanging out with all these, the, the best football players in the world um, you know, and lots of other celebrities. But, but the, one with, the one with Madonna is one of those, you know, I wish, it, I, wish I would have met her, you know, but uh, didn't, it didn't happen. Yeah. So I guess... The boy who was very shy becomes this extroverted guy who works with uh, superstars and celebrities. Did you find any commonalities between you and them in terms of do they have the same issues with self-esteem as you had when you were young? Yeah. Like one of the things which I really appreciated, you know, and helped me, um, gave me part of what gifted to me, the ability to work with anyone is, um, yeah, is hanging out with celebrities because there's two sides or more. You know, there's uh, there's very few uh, because in that occupying that particular position is hard to be normal. Inverted commas, but essentially, you know, from the ones which I met, and there were quite a few high level ones, had really serious challenges. You know, uh, and what it gave me those three things. One was this understanding that no matter what it looks like here, everyone has their own specific challenge. Number two was that it's up to you to either recognize that and and do your best to heal it or not, or run away from it. And then number three was that if you decided to go on that journey, then there's a frequency that you can connect with. And that's what I was doing. So most of these guys, uh, we had these discussions and we, we got to the first two, which then led to number three. So to summarize everything, it's like it got to a point where I treat everyone the same because I realized we all are the same. 
and through hanging out with all these different types of people along the way, especially celebrities, I realized that, that, that yeah, at the end of the day, for most who are, who are able to get through those first two, it's just a matter of um, being able to connect with people and not having to put on a face, a front to show to the world this duality. And, you know, if you can be in a space where they feel like you want nothing from them, the conversations and the connections that you can have, that you can make, the frequency of them is beautiful. Yeah. I, Amazing. I experienced the same. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Um, so two more questions. One is interesting for me because you're a father now and you had this childhood. What values from your childhood and from your life and from your parents, uh, even though you haven't seen them for uh, for quite a long time, uh, did you instill in your kids? Yeah. <laughs> Resilience came straight up, right? But are our kids resilient? Oh, the jury's out. The jury's out. They're seven to nine. Ah, one is very resilient. Yeah. Uh, you know, but have they fully imbibed that resilience streak? I don't know. Uh, if I was to be truthful, 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 I'd say at this point, probably not. Uh, I think we maybe we spoil, spoil them a little bit too much um, for that, right? That's one. Number two, um, this ability uh, to treat everyone the same, uh, unity and diversity, regardless of the color of your skin, da, 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 I think they've got that one. You know, so I think our kids are really good at um, communicating with anyone, you know? Sometimes they get into that mode of maybe uh, looking down upon someone and then we quickly say, hey, 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 no, 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 da, 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 oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so, so they've, they've got that one. I, li I like to think in threes. Um, so, so one, resilience. One, this unity in diversity or united in diversity uh, here in Indonesia, the, 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 the model of the country, right? Um, the third value that would be uh, important Mm. Yeah, going for your goals, you know, like going for something, standing for something, uh, you know, that one I think is a work in progress, yeah. you know, with the, with the younger one, I think she's got that more, like she knows what she wants uh, and, and she'll, she'll go for it, you know, and she'll get it. I think the, the old one is more uh, emotional uh, in, in that way and will, might bend towards whoever she's with, if they're a stronger personality. Uh, but the younger one is more that, this is what I think, this is what I want to do, um, I'm doing it. Yeah. And the final question I ask everybody, according to Robert T. Bonnick, how to live a happy and fulfilling life? How can you, how to live a happy and fulfilling life according Ooh. to you? Wow, happy and fulfilled life. Well, like I said, I like to think in threes, right? So yeah, so I'm waiting for a free. Yeah, so the, it, needs, it needs to be three. Okay. Number one would be, which I haven't been doing for a little bit of time, consistently, actually. But one would be about, yeah, spending time getting to know yourself. You know, whether that's meditation, uh, whether that's uh, doing something that you enjoy, alone, some alone time, right? So spend some time with you. Get to learn to like and love yourself. Uh, that would be one. Um, number two would be, you know, like going for your dreams, 
you know, going for that thing that lights you up, you know, and pursuing it and going for it and uh, being moved by it and, you know, staying up late, not sleeping much or whatever that passion to obsession thing looks like for you. Uh, that, that, that would be, uh, that, that'd be another one in there. And then, um, the third and final one, yeah, is something which I love about Indonesia, right? United in diversity, unity in diversity. So it's this, you know, awareness of, you may look different. We may have different ideologies, different ways of seeing the world, different ways of seeing each other, different ways of seeing ourselves, but we're all connected. Now on that level, we're the same, different choices. Um, but we're all connected. So that united in, di in diversity and the understanding of it at the core, I'd say would be, would be number three. Wow. Beautiful. You made it. It's all in freeze now. Uh, the podcast where everything is very, very structured. That's what happens when you interview the podcaster. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for this. I really, I really appreciate you coming and sharing your story. Any parting words before, before we go, anything you want to share? Yeah, there would be, you know, I mean, one that comes up is, is just want to acknowledge you, you know, so this covered the shock to some people. So even though I've known you for a while, right? So the only, uh, podcast I remember was the million, right? The, the, the million podcast. So a few days ago when we got this together, you know, and it was like, okay, sold, sold to soul, right? And there's a question there, like, what was your favorite episode? You know, I was like, ah, <laughs> I haven't got one. I haven't seen any of them, right? So, so it was funny uh, seeing that, right? But then, you know, sitting down here now, and one I just saw was the Dalai Lama or someone, you know, uh, one of the monks. I did see that, right? And now I understand why, you know. So I want to acknowledge you because it's so important now to reconnect soul, right? Yeah. To reconnect to source on who you are and then having people, whoever's sitting in this chair, you know, to give their honest, heartfelt, um, authentic, you know, view of the world through their eyes is beautiful, man. Because again, like this united in diversity, like there are things that we all share, you know, regardless of how we look or appear to the world. And to hear those things kind of, uh, it connects us, it unites us, right? It makes us feel seen and heard which is the, probably the two key things I haven't mentioned, uh, but to be seen and heard is so important, right? And if you can do that, you cut out so many of the challenges the world is facing, yeah. so many challenges that people perceive to be that are not there at all. And all of these things that we have when we have this, this thing with each other uh, that divides us, the, 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 there's a disequilibrium between us. It's this thing of, uh, I think you're this when, when I know that you're not. So, so yeah, so doing, doing this, uh, I love it, man. And now I, I understand how the whole thing connects. Please keep doing it because I believe and feel that it's really important uh, for the reasons that I've given before that you continue to do it, continue to have people here sharing their story um, with, with you and, and, and the audience. So thank you very much indeed, brother. Amazing. Thank you very much. Oh. For everybody listening, please like and subscribe. Whatever he said, I agree. <laughs> 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 oh man beautiful thank you